This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Levy Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest today is Jason Hoxima, biology professor at the University of Mississippi and president of the Delta Windbirds Organization. He's always looking to help create and preserve areas for winds to thrive during their long migrations. So we'll talk about these birds, where they can be found, and how you might could help their yearly journey. As always, Dr. Major is ready for pet questions, and Libby likes to hear about your recent encounters with nature. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. We always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Libby. How are you doing this morning? Good morning. Doing great. So uh, you have returned from your latest trek out west. If you would uh, update us, how was the journey back to Mississippi? Okay, lots and lots of snow and some very cold weather, but it was absolutely beautiful. The um, The roads were clear and there were enough people on the roads, I guess, to keep them clear. So um, we really enjoyed it, but it was um, not without a little bit of stress and concern along the way. We ended really going out the first week of December was a little bit worse weather than coming back because we, you know, we, we had to learn how to use our snow chains and that kind of stuff. So we, uh, I wouldn't say we're seasoned, um, snow travelers yet, but we've, uh, we've had some experience now with about on this last 5,000 mile trip, but it's good to be home. And, um, uh, Paul put out the, uh, black oil sunflower seeds right away and I'm, I'm watching chickadees, and this time they're Carolina chickadees instead of black-capped chickadees that I have in Oregon. And I've got a couple of goldfinches out here and some house finches, and I'm hearing leopard frogs. And I thought about you, um, Kevin. I think that's one of your favorites. They're laughing away in my pond. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> I, uh, other, I'm hoping that some listeners might call in and let us know if they're hearing frogs this morning. I, I heard them, I guess they started about 9 o'clock last night and um, just stepped out on the porch a few times before the storm came through. And, um, you know, they like a good rain, so that's that's what they're about. They're um, I think they're having a social gathering down in my pond right now. Lots of laughter. <laughs> right. Oh, and I, I do want to mention one other thing. Uh, last weekend, because I think it's it's notable, um, a fin whale washed up mm-hmm. on the, the beach there at Pass Christian. And um, while it's always sad to, to see a, a big animal like that, see any animal dead, but particularly a great big whale, it reminds us that we have whales living in the Gulf of Mexico. And I think what I read about uh, over 25 species of whales live in the Gulf. And you know, all the great big ones, uh, blue whales, humpback whales, um, of course, the fin whale. The fin whale that washed up on the beach is a, a very long, thin, sleek-looking, from a overhead photograph, it looked like an ocean liner 
and they're uh, they're pretty fast. Of course, we've always got dolphins that people can see. Uh, the, uh, the big sperm whales are occasionally seen. In fact, I remember years ago, I'd never really thought about whales in the Gulf of Mexico until it's probably been 35 years now. Richard Rummel told me about seeing a sperm whale in the Gulf of Mexico, and it made me very interested. I've not seen one, but I've, I've talked to plenty of people on the coast that have. So anyway, just uh, uh, something to think about. You know, Libby, we always like having you and Dr. Major in the studio, but it's fun to to hook up either via Skype or by phone because we can definitely hear nature in the background, the birds chirping. And uh, when we get Dr. Major on the line, sometimes we can hear the pets in uh, at the veterinary clinic. So it adds a little bit of uh, a soundtrack to our show. Oh, good. I'm glad. I didn't think about you being able to hear, but I'm on the porch again, on the screen porch. You know, that was my COVID studio for so long that um, it's comfortable back out here. Uh, we do have an email that says, we live in central Illinois, former Delta residents. Every morning for the past few weeks, a yellow-bellied sapsucker is very loudly pecking on our windows or on the windowsill. Uh, there's obviously no food there. Does he or she just like to annoy us? What are your thoughts, Libby? Well, they like to make a lot of noise. Uh, Jason can address that better than I can. But um, So that was this week, I guess. And um, my yellow-bellied sapsuckers are, thankfully, I guess, they're on a tupelo tree and uh, making that neat little, you know, it's almost like a typewriter. They make a neat line of, um, of dots and then start over, and then their sap starts flowing, and uh, they get to enjoy the sap, and other birds do too. So I'm not sure. I, I assume that like most woodpeckers, they do like to make noise and that they may be establishing territory and uh, maybe calling a mate. But I'd like to hear what Jason has to say. Uh, Jason, are you with us? I am. What are your thoughts? Well, whenever I hear about a bird tapping on a window, if it's the window in the glass, I wonder if they're seeing their reflection. Uh, Northern Cardinals are sort of famous for this. They, I saw one the other day over on busy Jackson Avenue uh, in Oxford here, uh, flying up against a window, look, you know, and they're fighting off a, a, what they think is an intruder in their territory. But um, if it's the window sill and it's a wooden, uh, a wooden spot, then, then I don't know what's going on. On there, um, as as Libby said, you know, they're this time of year they're most concerned with um, renewing and and creating those holes in in trees with sap, and then they go around and they eat the sap, and and sometimes eat insects that are attracted to the sap. Yeah, I used to have a woodpecker of some sort that uh, would hammer on my downspouts on my uh, outside my house, and I don't know, some people might find hmm. it annoying, but I thought it was kind of a, a fun little sound to listen to, and it was. Uh, it, like a lot of creatures, the you know when you hear them, then you go look for them. Suddenly they've disappeared. So they were good at either uh, camouflaging or getting out of the area when I went looking for them. But like I said, to me, it's kind of a, a fun little sound. Well, that's a good point, Kevin. That um, you know woodpeckers, including the sapsucker, will do what's called drumming, and this is different than when they're getting food. If they're getting food, they're picking away, they're poking, they're creating holes. But if they're just drumming, making that brrrr sound, then that's more of an advertisement. You know, woodpeckers don't sing, but instead they do this drumming, and each of them has a different distinctive drumming pattern, and that's communication with other 
members of their species, whether it's a territory or trying to attract a mate. So if that's what's happening, then then that's a, that's definitely a communication with uh, another individual of the same species. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Troy Major has joined us on the telephone, as he does each week. So, Dr. Major, I have an email here for you, and it says, uh, I share my life with a beautiful wife for Border Collies. The patriarch of the Border Collie family is Blue, a very active, super healthy, smooth-coated variety of Welsh parentage. About six months ago, Blue developed a small bald spot on his tail, which has continued to expand. It now is about uh, one inch uh, long. It doesn't seem to bother him. The vet initially prescribed Gen 1 spray, but that did nothing. Next up, Animax ointment. Two courses of that did nothing. His next recommendation is a $300 punch biopsy, which will require my fine boy to wear a, fu- a funnel for a couple of weeks. All this seems crazy to me. Seems like it would make more sense to just keep trying new meds until we find the one uh, that seems to be effective. I do love my vet, but on this one, they seem to be missing the mark. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, Dr. Major? It would be important to know where exactly on the tail this is. Uh, there is a, I'm not talking about anal glands now, I'm talking about a tail gland. There's approximately uh, one and a half, two inches on a dog that size from the base of the tail. There's some gland areas that once they start to lose the hair there, uh, very difficult for it to come back. Uh, I would suggest antibiotic might help some. If you make a habit of looking at dogs, older dogs especially, you'll see a lot of dogs that have a bald spot probably an inch and a half to three inches from the base of the tail on top. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm sure we trust the vet, but uh, I'm not so sure that a biopsy is going to tell you anything. And it may be one of those things that you do not give the hair to grow back. So that's without seeing it personally, it would be hard for me to tell you any more than that. How about this? If if uh, the person maybe can't afford, doesn't think that the punch biopsy is the way to go, is it okay to suggest to your vet, hey, is there any other ointment, other treatment that we could you know, try before we go to that uh, idea? Certainly, and I think probably listening uh, to what you read from the email that maybe uh, this person was suggesting that to the vet, but I would try some alternative things first before doing a biopsy. But uh, the vet on the scene has looked at it and would certainly be capable of knowing what it is. And I would love to see a, to see a picture of it. Uh, if they could email a picture to you, you could forward that to me. Yeah, in fact, they did have a picture, so maybe we can uh, email that to you. We'll be able to get a little bit more on that. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And our guest for the day is Jason Hoxima, biology professor at the University of Mississippi and president of the Delta Windbird Organization. You can join our conversation. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll dive into our discussion about Delta Windbirds in just a minute, but I did promise that we would get to Francis, who's called in from Natchez. Good morning, Francis. You're on the air with us. Yes, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh I'm wondering what happened. Uh, I'm from the Kingston area in Natchez. And uh, when I was small, back in the 60s, I used to see a lot of Baltimore Orioles. And they used to make these long weed nests. Uh, I I couldn't tell you the last time I saw one of those. And uh, the robins and the cedar waxens. You know, I I hadn't seen uh, too, too many of those lately. What's happening? 
Jason, we get this question a lot where people have seen birds and then they don't see them anymore. So do you have some thoughts on kind of the shifting of bird populations and where they might be? Well, there are a few things that could be going on. Certainly, one possibility is that some of those species are declining. Um, habitat destruction is uh, the major cause of bird population declines, and Baltimore Orioles uh, are not as abundant as they were uh, a decade or two ago. Um, the other thing is that birds do go through natural shifts in their range, so it might be a bird that was common in your area uh, 10, 20 years ago, uh, but now it's found elsewhere, and that does happen. Some of that is happening in response to climate change. Uh, some of that happens over time for reasons that we don't understand. All right, uh, Francis, thanks for your call this morning. Uh, so, Jason, thanks for joining us this morning. Um, you've been on the show before, and we've enjoyed visiting with you. But for listeners who might not be familiar with you, tell us a little bit about your background and the Delta Windbirds organization. Sure. Um, I'm a biologist, and I study trees and fungi, but I also study birds and bird habitat. Um, Delta Windbirds is an organization that we founded actually with a group of, of birders, people who were just bird enthusiasts because uh, we wanted to try to help these migratory birds. Um, Delta Windbirds was founded with the idea specifically of working with private landowners to create habitat for migratory shorebirds. So shorebirds are amazing birds that a lot of people don't know a lot about, um, but You've probably seen them if you've sat on the beach, and some of them are in the habit of running up and down with the waves. As the waves come in, as the waves go out, they'll run out and try to pluck some food out of the wet sand down there. So that's one of the reasons they're called shorebirds, but they're not just found on the shore of the ocean or the gulf. They're also really common inland as well. They nest in inland areas, and they migrate through Mississippi in huge numbers, uh, more than half a million of them come through the Mississippi Delta, for example, every spring and fall. So our organization is trying to help those birds by providing habitat for them when they stop through Mississippi on their way from their nesting grounds to their breeding ground, nesting grounds to their winter grounds and back again. So we're, we're sort of like the rest area for these birds, I guess, then, right? Exactly, yeah. So one of the most amazing things about these birds is their really arduous and impressive migratory journeys. They're they're really the champions of migratory birds. Uh, a lot of them nest in the Arctic in far northern Canada and Alaska, and a lot of them then spend the winter anywhere from the Gulf of Mexico down to the southern tip of South America. Wow. So, you know, round trip, you know, there, a lot of them are flying more than 20,000 miles every year uh, just for migration. And along the way, most of them don't do that in just one flight. Uh, they need to stop over, and they stop over. They might fly 500 miles, 1,000 miles at a time, and that might take them a day or two or more than one, more than that. But when they stop, they're, they're hungry, and they need high-quality stopover habitat. So they need patches of wet mud and shallow water where they can find lots of invertebrate animals, little worms and clams and insects, uh, to eat like crazy. Uh, so... In Mississippi, it used to be that the Delta especially was a vast wetland that had a lot of that kind of natural habitat. As the waters receded and went up and down, there were a lot of mudflats exposed. Now we control those water levels a lot more, 
but there's still a great opportunity to provide temporary wetland habitat for these birds. And we've been exploring doing that on, especially on um, lately on crop fields, uh, working with farmers uh, who have extra uh, water that they've collected in their tailwater recovery systems that is left over at the end of the crop season. They can then pump that back out onto the fields and create habitat for these birds during the fall, right when they're coming through on their migratory journeys. So the, your organization, the Delta Wind Birds, has done a study that traps shorebirds in the Delta and puts radio tags on them. Tell us a little bit about that and what sort of information you can learn from that sort of a study. Yeah, so one thing we don't know very well is how long do these birds stay? We see, uh, I have a graduate student, Emma Counts, who goes out there every two weeks to our sites and she counts the birds that are there. But we don't know if they're the same individuals week to week or if they're t- completely turning over. We really need to understand how long do these birds stay. Uh, and so we've started catching them and putting radio tags on them. And we've got a radio tower there at one of our field sites that's up on the top of a grain bin near Indianola. And these radio tags send out a little signal. And if the birds stay in that area, we pick it up on our radio tower. So we capture these birds. We, we actually glue a little radio tag, very, very small, small enough that it doesn't uh, weigh them down uh, onto their backs, and that emits a signal. When they leave the area, we may never hear from them again. Uh, but there is a big network of these towers spread out through North America and South America and Central America as well. So we, may, we sometimes get lucky as well and get a signal detected uh, somewhere else in the network. And that, that provides really interesting information. But this past fall, we radio tagged about 20 of these shorebirds, and we found some interesting things. Um, one thing we've learned is that we think that they're staying in the area a lot longer than we thought. Um, some of these individuals are staying in the Delta for a month or two after we catch them, when a lot of the previous data had suggested they're only staying around for about 10 days or less. So, for example, one... Uh, bird called a pectoral sandpiper that we radio tagged on September 23rd was hanging around at that same site in Indianola until around mid-November, November 15th. Um, meanwhile, our very first radio tagged pectoral sandpiper on September 23rd, we did not detect it again in Mississippi after that day we tagged it. But then 24 days later, we got a detection from a radio tower in Paraguay, right in the middle of South America. Hmm. So that bird had spent the last three and a half weeks migrating south to South America and then was detected on another radio tower in South America. So it almost sounds like they have an innate sense of when when it's time to go. Well, yes, absolutely. Um, this has been shown in captive birds that are migratory Um you know, during the, the time of year when they're supposed to be migrating, they, if, even if they're in a little cage, they start flapping and, and trying to fly south if it's in the fall against that southern wall of the cage. There, there's a, a deep instinct ingrained in these birds to fly south in the fall and to, to fly north again in the spring to get to their really productive breeding grounds. Um, but it really varies a lot depending on the species. So I mentioned pectoral sandpipers, which... They only come through Mississippi in migration. They don't nest here. They don't spend the winter. They buzz through for weeks at a time in the fall. Uh, on the other hand, we have really interesting shorebirds called like the Wilson snipe. Wilson snipe is a 
it's a real bird. People have probably heard about snipe growing up and maybe were sent on fake uh, snipe hunts into the woods, but snipe really do exist. They're a really cool wintering shorebird that come to Mississippi in October or November, and they are very cold tolerant and they will plot around out in muddy, wet agricultural fields all winter long, finding food out there. And we captured one of those in mm, late October and that bird has been around for more than two months. And uh, so it really depends on the species. Uh, those Wilson snipe are out there all winter long, and then they will head back north uh, where they nest in the northern United States and up into Canada. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today, our guest for the hour is Jason Hoeksema, biology professor at the University of Mississippi, president of the Delta Windbirds organization. If you want to join our conversation this morning, you can email animals at mpbonline.org. Got a couple of bird questions on the line. So as promised, we'll begin with Anna in Oxford. You're on the air with us, Anna. Go ahead. Uh, Yeah. um, Just before the freeze, uh, I saw a pair of kinglets, the ones with the little red tops on them, and the freeze was particularly hard. I just wonder if um, they would be harmed. I mean, they, they do fly north for nesting, so maybe they are okay. I was quite surprised how tiny they were. Yeah, so ruby-crowned kinglets and golden-crowned yeah. kinglets are both, uh, yeah, they're, they're awesome birds. They're both really common in Mississippi in the winter, and they are very uh-huh. cold-tolerant. One problem with the freeze we had was that it came on so fast, and so... Uh, you know, some birds did not have time to adjust. Uh, what happens in Mississippi in the winter is when we get a really hard freeze, uh, usually there's a bit of a warning where it comes in as a cold front, and, and some birds will move f- uh, further south where it's a bit warmer. They'll move towards the Gulf Coast. Um, but that said, you know, I've got lots of kinglets in my yard today, uh, golden crown kinglets and, and uh, ruby crowned as well. So I think most of them did just fine, but I did hear about some bird mortality happening in response to that cold snap, um, mainly because of the speed of it and, and birds not having a chance, presumably, to move further south or to take take appropriate uh, other measures. Um, I'll just mention quickly that that was one of the interesting things we were looking for in our radio-tagged birds out in the Delta. Um, we had three shorebirds that had radio tags on them that were at our habitat site uh, right before Christmas as that cold front was approaching, and we were curious to see what would happen, and all three of them cleared out uh, (laughs) right as that cold front hit. Uh, Killdeer and Elise Sandpiper and and that Wilson Snipe I mentioned, um, they cleared out, they were gone, and then they came back about uh, just a few days later after it warmed up. Um, So we think they probably moved south to warmer areas, and then when the, the habitat thawed again, they came back up again north. All right, Anna, thanks for your call. Let's stay on the phone lines. Next, we'll visit with uh, Mike from Hernando. Good morning, Mike. Go ahead, please. Uh, good morning. Uh, question, sir. The, um, I live up here in DeSoto County, and to our west, of course, is the huge delta. And uh, seasonally, I, I love it when the snow geese come down from Canada and fill the del- delta, and it looks like snow's all over the ground. Is there a timetable for their arrival and departure because I'm also a photographer and would like to get some shots this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, they're a wintering bird, and they they typically arrive sometime in November, 
and their departure um, you know varies a little bit but they'll be here through January and probably through most of February I start seeing them take off uh, at the end of the the winter so you've got some time yet here I'd say at least another month another good month and maybe longer depending um, right. it's quite a I'll phenomenon. tell you something I'll tell you something funny I agree. a friend of mine works at the Memphis International Airport tower where they're bringing the planes in and out. It's one of the busiest airports in the country. And I asked him one day, I said, did snow geese drive you nuts? He said, you have no idea because they divert planes around them because you've got hundreds of thousands of these birds coming down in the aircraft, you know, are trying to fly in through them and around them and everything. So it's kind of an oddball event up here. Wow. Yeah, I believe it. Um, you know, the other thing is that they, they are a bit of a nuisance to some of our farmers in the Delta. They'll come in and eat. Uh, winter wheat uh, like crazy. So, you know, some of our farmers out there, if they've got a winter wheat field planted, um, if, a, if a goose flock decides to descend on that field, it's it's done with. Um, they don't they don't hit all of them, of course. And they spend a lot of time in the winter moving around and finding, uh, you know, corn stubble, uh, you know, corn that's been left after harvest and um, and they can find other food out there. So they're not always harmful. But the big numbers of those snow geese are, it, it's quite a spectacular phenomenon. If anybody hasn't seen it, um, I agree with you. It's really amazing. And, and you can go out uh, in many parts of the Delta and find them. Um, I like to go out along uh, Valentine Road and over in uh, you know, northwest of Batesville. Um, but up north of there, along Fish Lake Road is a good place. And then up into Tunica County as well. But they're all also out in the southern delta, southwest of uh, of Cleveland, down there. And anyway, it's uh, it's really quite a phenomenon. It, it, we see flocks of two thousand, three thousand, five thousand, sometimes even ten thousand of them. It's snow geese mixed with Ross's geese and a couple of other goose species. Um, the one thing that's happening with them that's interesting to note as well is that up in the Arctic where they nest, they're actually so abundant now that they're damaging their own nesting habitat. They're uh, and, and biologists are concerned about it and would like to control their numbers. Uh, so they're wide open on hunting down here, and, and people do hunt them, but they don't get hunted nearly enough to help control their, their population. So it's beautiful and interesting to watch and also a bit of a problem. All right, Mike, we appreciate your call this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Our guest today is Jason Hoxima, biology professor at the University of Mississippi and president of the Delta Windbirds. So, Jason, you mentioned uh, earlier the, uh, pr- the, uh, the, the project that you have that works with uh, farmers in the Delta to use uh, some of their land that they don't uh, grow crops in uh, for habitat. Uh, tell us how successful that's been. Are you getting some, some real mm-hmm. buy-in with the farmers in the Delta? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so we started out trying to work with uh, farmers in the Delta to do this because we wanted to be able to make more habitat for these birds, but without pumping groundwater. That was our initial question was whether we could do that because you know groundwater is a, a growing concern in the Delta. Um, it's a precious resource that is being depleted. And you know, for bird conservation, we wanted to try to see if we could make shorebird habitat without pumping groundwater and contributing to that issue. So we started working with a farmer who has what's called a tailwater recovery system. This is a series of ditches and leveled fields and pumps that allow the runoff to be captured and recycled back into a reservoir and reused. 
Uh, farmers put this in in a partnership with the USDA NRCS. And if anyone is interested in that, you can call uh, an NRCS uh, staff person and find out about it. But it's a really nice system. It, once it's in, it really saves a lot of water. It saves a lot of fuel because the pumping costs are a lot lower. And our farmer that we started working with near Indianola, he always has some extra water at the end of the crop season. So uh, we started out with him after a, a corn crop because corn is harvested nice and early in the fall. Um, where he'd harvest his corn and then prep his beds and then pump that water from that reservoir back out onto a couple of those fields and hold that water there. And at first we were just looking at it for potential benefits to the birds because it makes really good potential habitat. And we found that the birds flocked to it like crazy. Uh, our farmer said that he, he saw those birds dropping in out of the sky within hours, in fact. Uh, the killdeer get there right away. He thinks they can even smell it, maybe. Uh, and then within the next couple of weeks, it just gets better and better because it turns more into a functioning wetland. The invertebrate animals in those in those wetlands pop, start popping up, and their numbers go up, and those worms are really abundant, and it gets just crawling with birds. But we also started working with the USDA here, a uh, research lab here in Oxford, to test some other ideas. Um, and find and, and what they were finding is that there are other benefits as well. Uh, one is soil conservation, because to keep that water on those fields, you have to put boards and stop up the, the water control structures and keep water from flowing off. So one of the nice benefits of that is when you have a storm event, that water doesn't go rushing off carrying sediment with it. Instead, it sits there, and that soil is kept on the field on site. So Farmers that don't have boards in their water control structures throughout the fall and winter are going to be losing some soil every year. Um, so we found that that's one big benefit as well. Just holding this water there promotes beneficial bacterial activity where they take excess nitrogen that would have just run off into the streams and rivers and, and get some energy by pumping it out into the air. And that keeps nitrogen out of our streams and rivers and out of the Gulf of Mexico, which helps reduce uh, oxygen depletion and the, the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. So be, because of those other benefits, we were excited, but we were most excited to find that at, at least at this farm, when the farmer went to plant subsequent crops, a soybean crop on these fields, uh, he found about a four or 5% increase in his soybean yield on the fields that had been flooded compared to the ones that weren't. Uh, and that was really intriguing. Uh, and so we got a grant from the EPA a couple of years ago to continue studying this phenomenon. And now we're working at 10 different sites across the Delta with different farmers uh, and testing these ideas, testing whether it matters with uh, whether it's after corn versus soybeans, uh, whether, you know, it's winter versus fall flooding, counting the birds and also measuring all these other potential benefits. And we'll have a much better understanding in a year or two of whether these effects are consistent uh, whether it varies with the soil type. Uh, that's one thing we're seeing is that it really depends on the soil. If the soil is too sandy, we can't even hold water on these fields. It'll just drain right through. Uh, and that might have other benefits, but for, it doesn't make bird habitat. Um, so it needs to be sort of heavy soil to hold that water. Um, in terms of the farmers buying in, it's a really good question. You know, a lot of them are just getting used to the idea. Um, and we'll see in a year or two how they feel about it. We're asking them all along the way how it's going for them, are there, are there costs, are there benefits, you know, what's their experience, and, and we're getting survey data back from the farmers each year. 
And so we're going to learn a lot about about how it is for the farmers. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, some of them have been flooding their fields for for years, for decades in some cases, because there there are some farmers that will flood their cor- their crop fields in the winter, especially for waterfowl, uh, for duck hunting. Sometimes in September also for teal hunting, um, there's an early teal season. So there are a few that do it already, but we've found that, that farmers who don't already do the flooding are, are usually somewhat skeptical and for, for good reason. They, you know, they don't want to necessarily fix what isn't broken um, in what they're doing. So you know, we're trying to work on that by talking with them about their concerns and try to figure out what are the real pros and cons and the real costs and benefits. And we'll know more in um, a year or two. But uh, I should say that one thing we are trying to do is get people to think about fall flooding and the potential big benefits of that, because it is more traditional in the Delta to flood in the winter for waterfowl. But there are a lot of benefits in the fall for flooding for shorebird migrants, for these benefits for nitrogen removal uh, and for soil retention. So that's something we're trying to talk to people about. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest for the hour, Jason Hoeksema, biology professor at the University of Mississippi and president of the Delta Windbird Organization. Back to the phone lines we go. And Dr. Major, first up is Frank. He is the one who emailed us earlier this morning. Frank, uh, follow up for us, if you would. I sent you an email a couple of days ago because I thought a picture would help. I have a eight-year-old border collie who's very healthy and very active, and he developed a, a, a bald spot on his tail uh, a few months ago. It started out about the size of a hole in a piece of notebook paper. It's now about three centimeters long and one centimeter wide. And we've tried two different medications on it, and neither one of them has slowed it down. And the current recommendation to do a pump biopsy, which I'm kind of against because he's going to have to wear one of those funnels for a while after that. I wondered why they couldn't just uh, recommend the medication that would have fixed what they think the punch biopsy is going to show and try it, and if it works, we'll know. And if it doesn't, we won't. Right. Uh, where is this located on the tail? Uh, it's about two inches from where the tail joins his body. It's on the outside or the upside, the top side. Right. And it, it sounds like what I thought or assumed it was based on uh, your email was that it is has to do with the tail glands. There are glands in that area right there. Uh, and we see it fairly common. Some of the dogs we see it in are obese, but not all. And it's difficult to get hair to grow back. The reason for a biopsy would be to rule out any type of cancer. I, I would suggest just as if I were seeing this dog probably around two weeks of antibiotic to see if that helps with it at all. To get it to grow okay. hair back may be difficult. So okay. I would say I, w- I would recommend myself antibiotic first, and if that didn't make any difference, I would go on with the biopsy. Okay. All right. Yeah, he's not overweight, by the way. He's forty-seven pounds and twenty inches tall, all muscle. Sounds like sounds like he's in good shape. Yes. Sounds like he's good. you said you have four four Yes. I do. I've, he's he's the he's the dad. He started it all. Well, that's that's a that's a pack of border collies. That's good. Anyway, I know you take good care of them. And good border collies and no grass. <laughs> all right, uh, Frank. Uh, thanks for your call. Uh, let's see if we can find in one final question for Doctor Major. It's uh, Judy has called in. Good morning, Judy. Go ahead. Uh, we had two dogs that 
instead of home fed at our place. And the dog's food was getting wet and in the carport, so we moved it over where it wouldn't be getting rained on, and the dog covered it up with sand and rock. So, have you ever heard of any dog doing that? Well, not really exactly. So you moved it where it would not get wet, and right. then the then the dog covered it up with sand and rock. We do see dogs that a lot of times, if they for some reason are not wanting their food, they will bury it. Uh, we see it here at the clinics. Let's say that we are feeding a dog, and quite often they will root it, turn it over, and cover it up with a, with their blanket or something like that. So. I'm not sure exactly what was going on here. Is it just one dog or, or more than one? There's two, but I think it's just one that buried it. Right. For some reason, this dog is not excited about the place where you put this. You didn't change food, did you? Same food that they've been getting. Is that correct? Well, we don't know what they were getting for the guy there, but uh, uh, she hasn't done it anymore uh, since that time. Okay. Well... That is strange behavior, but uh, I have seen it before where they will cover up their food for some reason. I don't think I don't think they're trying to bury it, but uh, really just covering it up. All right, uh, Judy, thanks for your call. Uh, Jason, we've got one minute left. We'll give you the last word. What if someone wants to learn more about the Delta Windbirds organization? Where can they go? Yeah, good question. Uh, we have a, a really informative website. And I encourage people to check that out. It's deltawindbirds.org. And right now on the very front page, you can click to go to a photo gallery that'll show you some really entertaining images from all of our shorebird capture sessions. If you're curious, how do you catch a shorebird in a wet, muddy agricultural field? (laughs) uh, You'll see that it it is not easy. We have to tromp around out there in the middle of the night uh, in some cases and get uh, pretty wet and cold, but it's it's worth it, and there's some really great images there to check out. We also have a couple of events coming up, and so if you go to our event page on deltawindbirds.org, you can see uh, a fun event we have coming up in February near Sky Lake, looking at both grassland birds and archaeology, and then a, a weekend-long event in April. All right, that will wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Fink Radio, funding provided in part by listeners. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can go to creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Media app. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Charles Arnold. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Jason Hoeksema, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned because up next, it's AutoCorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.